You're listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor Bill Carpenter. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to, t- to test him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he said? The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. Thanks, Pastor. As I said earlier, I am so happy to be home and to be with all of you. And I love going to Brazil. Don't misinterpret my comment at all here. I really, really do. Um, but it is a lot of work and effort and energy to go and do that. And uh, I love the people. My heart is there. Um, but every time I go to Brazil in all of these 11 years, there's a point where the, uh, the attitude of my own heart shifts a bit. And as much as I love these people and want to be with them, I start to long to be home. You know, it's like, okay, I'm ready to be done now. And that always happens before I leave. You know, it's not like I get to the end and go, okay, yep, we're done. Let's go. I'm going home. But it's always a bit before that, uh, no matter how long I stay or how short I stay. It's, it's like my heart starts to really long to be here with all of you. Um, and so I'm really thankful to be back. Um, I can, we can have coffee or lunch, and I can tell you all about Brazil. I don't want to take up all of our time here uh, doing that. Um, but just to, to be accountable and to give you an, an update, I, was, was in, I, I flew into Rio, spent a couple of days there, got acclimated to the, the world of the Brazilians, the culture, the food, and, uh, and all of that, and uh, then went to a place called Patangi, which is more in, inside of, of the country, um, um, a smaller village, um, a very lovely place to be. Uh, historically, it holds a lot of value and a lot of sense to the people of Brazil, this small little village, uh, which was a gold mining community in the early years, but it was where a Catholic priest was one of the first to be one of the insurrectionists against uh, Portugal. And so... D- 
tried to convince leaders to uh, renounce their, their uh, allegiance to Portugal and establish Brazil as an independent country. And so there's a lot of history there and a lot of proud people there. Um, but got to teach there uh, for a number of days. I, I did seven sessions of teaching. Each of them were about three hours in length. Um, uh, thus, the, the issues with, with my voice and, and the dampness of the, of the winter there. It's winter uh, in that part of the country. Uh, just one story of, of how God was working and moving. The places I go, most of the time, they are young people. I, I teach and, and train young people a lot. Um, it's leadership development type teaching. Um, it's, it's training young men and women in ministry. Um, it's working in a counseling school and teaching there on the Father Heart of God, things like that. Um, but this particular base has sort of lived outside of, of the, what is sort of the, the norm for, for uh, YWAM bases and other kinds of, of evangelical bases in, in Brazil. And there is a tremendous uh, intergenerational kind of piece to this. And so there are a lot of older people there and younger people um, and from a variety of backgrounds in life and various cultures throughout Brazil. And they all come together. And it's, it's a really delightful place to go in and teach. Um, in the, I think it was the fifth session that we were in, um, God did move in such a, a great way in that particular session. He did in others as well, but a, a unique way where there was a, a, a real sense of, of conviction and repentance and, and a lot of confession that came forth publicly. Um, and uh, a little lady, a little Brazilian lady, just a tiny little thing, a very dark-skinned little lady uh, and a very quiet uh, stood up and was just overwhelmed. She is in her late 70s, and she had been working on that base for over two and a half decades of her life, just giving herself to serving. Uh, she would clean up and cook and do all kinds of things like that. And um, she stood up in the midst of everyone, and she made a tremendous confession, and she said, I have worked my whole life trying to please God just wanting him to be happy with me. And I've been on this base, and my heart has not been pure because working here and doing the task that I have willingly done, I became very embittered because I would look at other people who had special jobs and special talents, and I would say, look at them, and then look at me, and I'm really nothing, and I'm nobody, and... Nobody really cares about what I do, and I don't even know if God does. And she said, in this session, as you were, were sharing, she goes, I got a revelation. And she said, it literally uh, just pulled me down into my chair, and my heart was just broken uh, for what I have missed because suddenly I just saw this base as this most wonderful place and my opportunity to serve God as a wonderful way to express to him how much I love him. And so I have been set free today, and I am not trying to do anything to get anything from anybody anywhere. I will, from this day forward, with great joy, do everything that I do to God, who is my Lord and my King and my Savior. And she turned to me and she said, Thank you. God brought you here for me, just for me. And for 24 years, I have been bound in darkness and sin. And today... I am set free. 
And the last sessions and days we were there, it was amazing and phenomenal to see the transformation in this little lady and the tremendous joy that suddenly she had. As a matter of fact, by the time I left, everyone was saying, hey, take her with you. She's crazy. Um, you know, uh, but she was. She was crazy in love with God and so appreciative that nothing that she did could justify her, but Jesus alone was her justification. And that was a powerful, powerful truth for her. Uh, and so praise God for those kinds of things. Good to see all of you, and especially those of you that I haven't seen in a long time, and uh, you're here today, and it, it's, just, it's just a great joy to have you here. Pastor Dave read you this passage in Luke. I would suspect that this is probably the best-known parable of Jesus. Uh, when we read these stories to you from the Scriptures each Sunday in this encounter series, hopefully you're not seeing them as just old stories and they're uh, just old things from the Bible and they're there and they're old, but that you see them in a very relevant way, very much applicable to your life today and where you are and that God is speaking to you in them uh, in the moment in real time. And uh, so hopefully that this happens today as well, even though this is a very familiar story for so many of us, and we've heard it many, many, many times. And I think if you're like me, as we've heard this story of the Good Samaritan, the story kind of just kind of narrows down. It, can, it gets condensed way down, if, if you will. Um, and I, I think most people sort of land on like about verses 30 to 35, and they just stay right there, and they don't really look at the the whole of this encounter that Jesus has with this young lawyer here. Um, but there's an entire, like, bigger setting here in this account that takes place that, that I, I think that, that most people miss because most people only go to that place, to that bit where it starts that, oh, there was a man that was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, um, and so on. And so they, that, just reading that piece of it, sort of, um, it, it puts you in a certain grid, all right? And that grid is like a, a, a thinking process, if you will, and it's like uh, you think, okay, you want to know what a real Christian looks like or, or is? Love God, love your neighbor, period. And then you move on. It's like, that's the parable. That's, that's it. And it's like sort of some kind of pat answer, all right? Um, so what it really means to be a Christian is that you help someone when their car breaks down on the side of the road or, or something like that. Uh, that's what a, a Christian is. Now, that's not entirely wrong, okay? I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I think you should do that. I think you and I, as Christians, should be models in our community and in our culture. Uh, we should be demonstrating to others that we are willing to take sacrifice of our own pleasure, our own desires, our own will, uh, crucify those things about us, and reach out and touch someone else's life at their point of need, whether that's a very simple, tangible thing or it's a deeper, more emotional kind of struggle or battle that people are going through. We meet people where they are. We walk with them. So that's very important for us, okay? Um, at, at this point in, in Luke's narrative, Jesus is on his way to the cross um, and thus the resurrection, all right? And so this whole thing of loving God and loving your neighbor, helping people who are broken down by the side of the road, if you will, is not the full picture here, all right? It is a huge, huge piece of the picture, all right? But there is something more going on in this account that I want to try to extract for you, if possible, this morning, um, and, and let's look at that, and let's let that speak to our heart this morning, okay? Um, so first of all, David's already taken you through the entire account. Uh, it's, it's not just the, the narrow 
parable, but all the way from verse 25 where he started down through verse 37, um, I want to take all of that. I want to kind of show you how it, it fits into this, this much broader flow of the gospel of Luke. Luke talks a lot about justification in his gospel. And I want to I kind of discuss with you this morning and talk to you about, about this larger context. Um, and, and, and then we'll think about how it applies to our lives today. We'll look at what we can take from this, what will be the big takeaway for us today as, as we walk through this, all right? So first, let's, let's talk about the parable in its like immediate context here, you know, what I was saying, uh, what David read to you. Um, I think you, you see kind of two sort of dialogues that are going on here, all right? Um, and if you have your Bibles, open them up and kind of follow through here with me a little bit and just, just kind of re- rehearse it as we go. Um, but first, this man stands up, this lawyer he's called, um, and he asks Jesus a question. But instead of answering the question forthrightly, um, Jesus replies with his own question, all right? And the man's answer to Jesus' question um, uh, is, is brought by a, a, another question, and this whole pattern is like sort of repeated, so that's why I say there's kind of like two matching dialogues. This man's on his dialogue, Jesus is on his dialogue. But the man asks the, the, this question in verse 25. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And instead of answering, Jesus replies with the question that David read to you, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, I want to understand how you are hearing the law or how you are interpreting the law. By the way, when you're sharing with people the gospel, it's really good to listen, all right? It's really good to understand where that person is coming from and how they are seeing things and what, what they are sort of building as they're shaping as their own uh, spiritual formation or their foundation uh, of, of things that, that they believe. And so Jesus says, I, 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 want, I want to hear your answer, um, and uh, I want to know what, what you think. And the man answers Jesus' question by quoting two biblical verses. Um, and then after that, after he kind of quotes Scripture back to Jesus, um, then in verse 28, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. In other words, that's the right answer. Do this, and you will live. Now, that's, that's, that's the first pattern, and, and then it's all repeated. The, the, the man hears what Jesus says, and it doesn't set right with the guy, all right? He, he, all of a sudden, he starts to think about something, and I think oftentimes when Jesus asks a question, he's really trying to get people to think, you know, to, to really, like, like pull back and, and think for a minute and understand what, what, you're, what you're doing inside of your, your own head there, all right? Um, this man here wants to justify himself, so he asked Jesus another question, all right? Jesus said, this, yeah, you, you do all of this, you know, love, love God, love your neighbor. You, you do this, you'll live. And so then it's like that's a little bit unsettling, and so the man asked another question. He says, okay, well then, well, who is my neighbor, you know? And we, th- we think of that, and, and, and I, I realize that I'm reading some stuff into this for you this morning, okay? And so you can take me with a grain of, of salt as well, all right? Um, but it seems like Jesus gives him this sort of pat answer, and then he comes back. He's not done. And keep in mind, he obviously is trying to trap Jesus here in, in some sense, okay? Uh, but he says, okay, well, who is my neighbor? Um, but before Jesus responds uh, again, asking his own question, um, um, then it's like Jesus gives this story, all right? He tells this parable, this story of a good Samaritan. Now, we don't know if this was an actual situation that Jesus knew about uh, or if he's just 
creating this story to try to help this man to understand uh, where he's, he's going here, okay? But, but this expert uh, in the law here replies back to Jesus' question, you know, and Jesus says, you know, which, which one is the neighbor, all right? Um, and, and are the good Samaritan? And he says, well, the one who had mercy on him. And then uh, Jesus uh, just kind of throws the, the, the bombshell out to this man and says, okay, well, you go do the same. You know? Now, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's, let's break that down, if you will. The first question, I think, is, the most, is, is a most important piece to this story here. Um, and it's one of the things that we kind of trip over or we ignore or whatever. But it is this question. This man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. This is a dialogue about a man who is supposed to be an expert in the law. Now, for us, that means obviously a lawyer, but in those days, it meant also that he was a theologian. All right? Um, That he, in the law, he studied God's law. All right? So that meant that he was a religious leader. And, And... In the law that is in question here, it was the law of God. And this man understood this law from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch, all right? The first, he was very educated in the first five books of, of the Old Testament. Now, this would have been his area of expertise, wouldn't it? This would have been where he was, he, he, he landed here because he knew this, all right? And Luke tells us that he stood up in the midst of whatever this group of people was around to ask a question. Now, in those days, uh, that was customary for someone to stand up to honor the teacher or the one who was, who was speaking, all right? Uh, as a listener, as a learner, they would be sitting around that person listening to them teach, and then they, they would stand up if they wanted to ask a question. So he stood up. This was a sign of respect, all right? We don't get that all the time when, when we go to a classroom and we, and we take a class from an instructor or a professor. Uh, but there was a lot of honor that, that was given there. And so in a sense, um, he honored Jesus there. But we also see here that he had a really wrong motive, all right, because it, uh, he was like others that, that on occasion who were experts in the law, um, they, they were trying to trip Jesus up. Um, and so in, in some sense, that kind of honor is, is just hypocrisy here. Uh, this man was feigning this kind of respect, if you will, because his motive was to try and to catch Jesus here, all right? So his question is designed, actually, to take Jesus down a, no- a notch or two here. And that's not uncommon in the Gospels, all right? Uh, for an example, in Luke 20, 20, it says, um, keeping a close watch on him, this is the Pharisees you know, and, and the leaders, it says they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, all right? In other words, they were hoping to trap Jesus in something he said so that they could hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. And so this was a common thing that Jesus was battling all through his time on earth, so he would encounter these kinds of people. So he's trying to ask a question that would get Jesus to say something that's either uh, maybe stupid or even maybe criminal, all right? Um, you see reporters do this today in the news. They, they ask questions just to try to, to corner somebody or, or catch somebody up. So that's what's happening here. He's trying to trap or, or catch Jesus. Um, and so he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, and, and I would ask you, what do we make of this question? We need to think about this. Because on the one hand, it sounds odd, to me anyway. Um, 
and, and we maybe have become so familiar with this text that we don't, we don't think about how odd it is or, or how odd it might be or how incongruent it might sound. What do you do to inherit something? You get born in the right family. You don't do something to get an inheritance. It's given to you. Now, you, you may do better if you're a good son or daughter as opposed to a not-so-productive son or daughter, or something happens in the, in the family dynamics that, that kind of shifted around, all right? But, but normally, um, you, you get into the right family, you get that inheritance, you don't have to get anything for it. Um, so you, you, you kind of get your dues at, at, at the end here, like when your father or your grandfather passes away or sort of, and then you inherit it. Um, it's not normally the way inheritance works for someone to work for it or to do something for it, all right? Um, people sometimes did speak of inheriting life in Jesus' day. That was a term that was, that was used. But, but to speak of doing something to inherit life um, overlooks the fact that that inheritance is not payment for services rendered. And so when you inherit eternal life, you don't do anything to get it. It's already done. It's the gift of God. All right? And, and so that, that's something that, that we, we need to, to look at here is this reality that, that hey, this, this, is, this question is kind of strange the way um, it's presented, if you will. And, and, and I, I would say that, that there are... There are even in our day some misconceptions about inheritance and, and those kinds of things. Um, but I think it's, it's pretty fundamental to us to understand that we don't earn eternal life. God gives us life through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. And, and so this man gets a, a question back to him because he's kind of got a a knot in his perceptions right here, and they're actually misconceptions that are, that are binding him up. And so Jesus asked him a, a question back, all right? Uh, but Jesus is good at this. It's, it's, some people call this questioning evangelism, all right? Uh, but Jesus makes people think, if you will, and Jesus was a real master at this, all right? So basically, Jesus says, you're the expert in the law, all right? You're asking me this question, but you're the expert in the law, how do you understand it? How do you read it? What do, what do you think? What do you say? I'd love to know what you think, all right? And so the man replies. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those of us who read our Bibles know that the pair of verses, um, there, there, there are other verses in another context that Jesus quoted himself and um, I think the context here makes all the difference in the world. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34, it's in this context there that there's another expert in the law that approaches Jesus here. Uh, he has a different attitude and a different question, but he says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, now in, the, in the first century, there were, there were these theologians, these thinkers, if you will, and they were asking the, that question, all right? Um, and it was kind of like if, if you get it right, like if you get everything right, uh, if you order your priorities right, all right, and, and, and your life is, is set in, in, in that order, all right, um, you got it, all right? You, you're, you're good to go, all right? But listen to, listen to, to, to what is spoken to, to the, the uh, Israelites. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Isn't that what these guys are saying? With all your soul. There it is. With all your mind. There it is. With all your strength. There it is. The second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy's quoting Old Testament theology. He's quoting stuff from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. This is the same two passages that this lawyer is bringing up to Jesus. But when Jesus quotes them, he's not answering this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's simply answering the question, what is the most important commandment? He's not saying this is what you have to do. He's saying this is the most important commandment. And, and, and maybe this guy, this lawyer, had heard Jesus say this in some way or other, and, 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 and maybe he's got some notions about what that answer implied or something, and so he's asking Jesus about it. But, but undoubtedly, he's judging uh, by his attitude. You know, he, he's con- condescending in some way here. Um, I mean, I think this guy actually thought he was going to make it. Like, he had it. Like, like, he was pretty convinced, as some others who talked to Jesus in different encounters that we've already talked about, thought that, that, that he had it, all right? He, he, was, he was going to make it. In other words, his answer implies to us that he believed that, that the way that you inherit eternal life is, is just by loving God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, this is where Jesus blows him away, all right? All this is, is just going along here. And Jesus says, you answered correctly. I did? <laughs> you know, yeah, you answered correctly. He says, you do this, you'll live. That was the shift right there. You, you do this, you live. Now, it, I don't always necessarily have a great feel for, for literature, but, but if, if you're one of those people who do... Um, you, you might think that Jesus is actually saying that this, this is the way you become a Christian. This is it. You got it right. Let's be done. Let's all go. Let, let, let's, let's let this be over. But it's not. If you, if you really listen to the whole flow of, of the account here in Luke, um, you're going to see that Jesus is saying something almost snarky to this guy, I think. And he's saying, you answered right. You got it correct, okay? Uh, if you can meet this standard... If you can do this, then you do it. You'll live. Here's the problem. He can't. He can't. Neither can I. Neither can you. We can't do this. He says, you meet the standard, and you know what? You don't need grace. All you have to do is be perfect. You got it. You be perfect, you'll live. Go ahead. You do this, you live. That's what Jesus is saying. But causes the man to squirm a little bit. And I think that's why he asked the second question, as we'll see in a moment, all right? And here's what I want to get to. You and I, like this man, have an ongoing struggle in our lives, and that struggle is called self-justification. We really want to justify ourselves, all right? But before we see what this, this, this question is all about and where he's squirming, I want you to put yourself in this man's place, all right? This lawyer has given his right theological answers. How many of us do that? 
You know, we got our little system. We got all of our answers. We, we know our own questions we have, and so we have all, all these pat answers, all right? And, and so he has asked his right theological question, and, and he's, he's been given the, the right theological answers. And that's what, re, that's what God requires. God, God requires of you and, and me, just like this man, that we love God with our heart and with our soul and with our mind and with our strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the, right, it's the right answer. And Jesus, just in a way that no one but Jesus could do it, just sort of patted him on the back and said, well done. That's all that's required. You just go do it. Now, what has this man con- committed himself to do? He has committed himself to earn his right to an inheritance. And he has committed himself to do it at an impossible standard. And when you go outside of the justification of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection, that's where you position yourself. That's what you do. You say, I'm going to work for my inheritance. I'm going to live such a life. I'm going to live so perfectly and do all of these things that it's going to require God to give me eternal life. And that, my friend, simply put, is idolatry. Anything that would save you over the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection is simply idolatry, nothing else. Yes, it is idolatry, and you and I oftentimes are just binding ourselves to that spirit and that work, all right? That's what it is. And painfully so, we are all idolaters in some degree, some place, some time, some way. Every one of us have put something between us and the free gift of eternal life. And the problem is that there are often times that we have set up a system. It's not just one thing or one moment, but it is a system that we believe that we have constructed ourselves so that we are living out of this belief system that is false, that is idolatrous, and is actually abhorrent to God because he has given everything for us. So the passage where Jesus quotes the the same verses is, is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 34. And in this context, there's another expert of the law and, uh, and that, that person approaches Jesus, different, different kind of attitude, a different kind of questioning. He says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, uh, yes, people were, were asking this question and they were talking about this question here. And, and Jesus, in, in every case, whether it, it was, was over there in Mark or now here in Luke, Jesus is going after the same thing. And ultimately the end is, you, you can't put value on anything and make it bigger or better or greater than the work of the cross. Yes, he hasn't gone to the cross yet, but understand, in Luke here, as we're talking about this encounter, he is on the way to the cross. He starts in verse, you know, chapter 9. In chapter 9, he has this, this attitude. This, you can see it if you, you just read this. All right? he, he has this mentality of headed to the cross. He's, he's on his way, all right? And, and, and so... Um, if, if you love yourself as your neighbor, I mean, I love my, I think I love my, I'll say it this way. I love my neighbor sometimes. All right? I love my neighbor sometimes. If my neighbor hurts his back, 
Um, I can offer to cut his grass. You know, I can, I can do something like that. But here's the thing. Even in that, then, I start to feel self-righteous. I did it. I, I, I was the Christian. I, you know, I went over, and I, I was the Christian, and I did the right thing, and God is going to please with me. God is going to love me. No, God already loves me, even if I don't cut the guy's grass. All right? So I, I can't do this to get more love. I can't do this to, to get something. So the question is, is that loving my neighbor as myself? I don't think so. I think that's loving myself more than I love my neighbor. And my neighbor is a pawn in this thing of me trying to get God to love me more. So Jesus has managed to answer this man's question with his own question. He's enticing the man to commit himself somehow to some kind of personal self-righteousness um, as a form to getting to, to heaven, but then to see how that is impossible, right? So he's exposing to this man his emptiness, all right? He's exposing this man's identity and inability to save himself. And so he says, go ahead, you, you do this, all right? All you have to do is be perfect and you're in. Boom. And I think the man kind of gets it, all right? Now, Luke tells us, that the man hearing these words wants to justify himself. This is verse 29. So he's already feeling something, and he's trying to justify himself to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? All right. Uh, in other words, he knows he's being bested in this de debate with Jesus. He knows that Jesus has, has got around him here. And so now the deal is to try to, to, to justify himself. Yeah, it's amazing how many people will come in and, and they will talk to David and I and they will, they will be sharing that what, they're, what they're doing, the decisions they made, knowing that their decisions are sin and that they're wrong and they shouldn't be doing them, you know. And, and, and we'll listen and we we're, won't judge, but we'll just bring them back to Scripture. This is what the Bible says, all right? This is, this is, this is where you are. And immediately, the next response, you can almost predict it 100% of the time, the next response is going to be self-justification. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but I, but I, this, you know, and, and I've got this going on and that going on. And so we're constantly, uh, as God's people, trying to justify ourselves. All right, now, there's a lot more to, to be sort of like parsed out and pulled out of all of this, all right? But this guy knows he's been beaten uh, obviously, Jesus is better in, in the debate, so he's got to justify himself. Um, we see that going on a lot of times today with us. You know, person A will, will ask a question to person B. Person B will give an answer. Person A will come back. Uh, person B will feel, you know, inadequate or inferior in some way, and then person B will, will respond out of some kind of, of justification. We're all prone to that. I, I understand that, all right? That is... That is that is in how we tend to be wired as fallen creatures, all right? But that's what Jesus is trying to get at. He's trying to say, you know, if, if you try, to, try to, to work out your salvation in your fallenness, you're going to miss the mark. You're not going to get it. You're not going to understand what, what this is all about. So, so you can't do that, all right? Let's, let, let's back off this guy for just a second here, all right? Um, there's a big theme in Romans, justification, that act by which God justifies us, all right? That is, God declares us to be just. It's something that God does. Um, God justifies on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. All right? He bore our guilt. Now, 
uh, Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. It's our, our, our guilt now is his guilt. So this is, is our gift, all right? He paid for it on the cross, all right? And, and on that basis alone, God justifies the ungodly. And so the ungodly can never do it for themselves, all right? So, so what's the opposite of justification? We, we, we could probably say that the, the opposite of justification is no justification. But let's, let's tilt it just a little bit. All right? Let's look at the perspective just a little bit different. And, and can we say that the opposite of justification, at least in the kingdom, is self-justification? That's what opposes the work of God. So when you self-justify... You are literally opposing the work of God in your life. You're coming against the very work that God has already done to you. Because in justification, God is the one who justifies us. When you and I feel like that we are a superhero and we got it and we can do it and we do it all, when we put the blue, red, purple, green, or orange cape on, uh, we have just put the work of God down. You just can't do it. You can't do enough to get it, all right? Um, so so, so the op, because God justifies us, and he's therefore the only one who can justify us, the opposite of that is that we try to justify ourselves. Um, and, and it doesn't take, for me at least, a whole lot of imagination or intuitiveness to see and understand how I alone and you do this, how we, we, just, we just let this kind of sin bind us up. And uh, it, it is really, really blinding at times when this starts to happen. And you and I, we, like, we don't see it. We don't get it, all right? It's like, it's like the guy who catches a big fish, not calling any names out here or anything, okay? It's like the guy who catches a big fish, you know, and he comes back to tell you about it, but he doesn't have the fish. He just tells you it's a really big fish. And then he tells you he's got a phone, and, and he'd love to show you the pictures, but nobody sent him the pictures, and he didn't take any pictures, you know. But he caught the big fish. Um, and then he starts to, you know, you, you can say something about that. Well, why didn't you take a picture? You had your phone with you, you know. You just got a new phone, you know, something like that. Um, but he's, he's sitting there, and so he says, well, you know, the fish got away. Um, you know, I had this lousy line, you know. It, it just it popped, it busted or something. I don't know. I don't know what happened, but the fish got away. But he was such a big fish. And what he's saying is, you know what, it's not my fault that I didn't catch that fish. It, it, it's the line's fault. I, I had poor line. I had... I borrowed somebody's rod and it was shoddy. You know, I, I, I was, the sun was in my eyes. I mean, you know, I, there's all kinds of ways to justify stuff, you know. And um, by the way, that didn't really happen. I just used him as, as, a, as a ploy here, okay. <laughs> but we do that. We, we, we justify these things. Uh, and when we do, we take away not only the work of God, but our own responsibility in our sin. And we retell stories about life. 
And these elements of self-justification get in there. They get put into these stories in some form or some way. And all the time we're doing that, we're building a case against the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And that's just such a dangerous place for you and I to go. All right? And we'll justify ourselves in decisions that, that we've made and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And we'll do it with people we know and love who know us, who know where we're at. All right? And, and we, we'll live our, our lives out of, out of guilt and out of shame and, and out of defeat. But we'll continue to justify things in our own mind instead of coming back to the Scriptures. And this is, this is where Dave and I, as your pastors, are always going to land. I'll just let you know. When you come in the door... And already you've got your justification, you know. How many times have you gone to meet with someone and you know there was going to be like some kind of like exposure or accountability and you didn't quite measure up and so you start to play out the scenarios in your mind on the way driving to coffee to meet this person, you know, and you go, well, they're going to say this, so I'm going to say this and then they'll probably say this, so I'm going to say this. It's a work of justification, all right, we're doing this. How many of you husbands before you get home because you didn't do what your wife asked you to do before you ever left home? that day you're coming home and you know that your wife is going to ask you about something and so you start to justify you start going through these scenarios you play them out in your mind yeah you're smiling right now because you know you are guilty just as I am you know and wives you've done it too okay we've all done this kind of stuff because self-preservation is so big and what God wants you to understand is you don't have to self-preserve Therefore, you don't have to self-justify. You're taken care of, all right? Because in justification, God does it, all right? So, so there's just a huge amount of sin that's bound up in this stuff. It's in Genesis 3. God asks Adam, what's going on here? And Adam says, the woman you gave me, all right? He blames her, all right? So God talks to, to Eve, and he says, Eve, what's going on here? And she says, that snake, for goodness sake, he's the one, all right? So you see how self-justification works? We, we can put it on someone else. We can, we can justify so easily, all right? And so this theme keeps showing up in Luke's gospel, and I don't think it's accidental that it shows up here, all right? Um, and so I think we have to kind of see this as, as this kind of recurring theme. Um, in, in, in Luke 16, Jesus draws attention to two or three things. In verse 14, he says, The Pharisees who loved money, when they had heard all that Jesus was talking about and regarding money, uh, they were sneering at him. So he said to them, now Jesus, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Right? They're sneering at him. He says, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What does that mean? It means that no matter how much you try to just, justify yourself to each other or to me or to someone else or even to God, he knows your heart. He sees in you. He sees the truth that is down in there. Now, self-justifying people might say, uh, of course, there, there are a lot of people who need practical help, um, but they ask for it. They, they weren't disciplined. They didn't, they didn't give themselves to working hard enough. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, it, wasn't, it wasn't mine to help them. It wasn't mine to reach out to them. It wasn't mine to take, take care of them. They're justifying themselves on, on the basis of what they had. 
But this theme of self-justification isn't just in this passage. Jesus, Jesus also um, depicts two people going up to the temple to pray in Luke 18. He doesn't use the term self-justification here, uh, but it's the same sort of account. Two people are going to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, one is a tax collector. You know, you know the story. The Pharisee is full of, of sort of like self-justification. He stands up, all right, and he prays, um, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not uh, like other people. Like, I'm not a robber, I'm not an evildoer, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not like this tax collector over here. Uh, and the tax collector stands up and starts to beat his chest and says, hey, God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for what is sufficient for me. I can't do this for myself. I can't, I can't take care of me. And so thank you that you love me and that you are taking care of me. See the difference? And this is the way God wants you and I to approach him, all right? And you need to understand that you cannot seek self-justification and God's justification at the same time. Simultaneously, that does not work because, please hear me, you cannot have both, all right? So when you come in your sin and you try to justify it before God or before your accountability partner or before one of your pastors, it's not going to work. It can't work. It doesn't work, all right? It, it never will work, all right? Let's talk about one more thing here. Um, this guy says, his other question is, who is my neighbor? I know you thought this sermon this morning was going to be all about this, this uh, Samaritan and them by the roadside and how they took care of this guy and, you know, the poor Samaritan. And everybody looks down on him, but he's taking care of this, this person that's beat up and robbed and is being generous and he's doing all these things and he's doing and he's doing and he's doing. Oh, yeah, you thought you were going to get saved by some works today. Well, you're not. All right, that is, that's not going to happen here. Who is my neighbor? Luke tells the story, says to this man, who's wanting to justify himself. Um, this sort of kicks off the, the second round of this little dialogue that's going on. Um, this guy says, well, if you're going to tell me that I, love my, I have to love my neighbor, well, then tell me who is my neighbor. Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to set this question up, really, all right? Um, and so you got to picture this man. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's downhill most of the way. It's 17 miles of, like, rugged terrain here. I mean, he, this, is a, this is a hard place to, to travel. And on top of it being a hard place for him to go, he gets robbed. Uh, he gets beaten. He gets stripped down. All right? He's naked. He's unconscious on the side of the road. He's, he's, he's just a carcass there, if you will, in the eyes of some. Now, first century... Uh, people uh, are Jews, they, they were highly structured in a lot of ways, all right, in the sense that, in particular, different groups could be identified by their language, by their dress, by their accent, if you will. Um, the priest, for example, often spoke Hebrew. Uh, the peasants spoke Aramaic, so you could tell one from the other, even though they were dressed differently as well, especially if they were from the south as opposed to other parts or other regions. They had these different kind of accents. People along the coast oftentimes on the trade routes uh, spoke Phoenician. Um, up north, uh, like in Galilee, they spoke Greek. Okay, then you would have government officials, um, emissaries to Rome, you know, political people who were traveling about. They all spoke Latin. Medical people spoke Latin. Um, uh, and, and, and most of them could speak some other language possibly as well. There's a lot of people in a small territory of land around here we're talking about here. And, um, and, and you could be identified by your accent very easily. 
as was Peter when he denied Jesus. And after he spoke to the young woman who questioned him, the man got in his face and said, you are one of them. We can tell by the way you speak that you are a follower of Christ. All right? If somebody was speaking to you in Greek or Latin in an accent, then you would know that they had some kind of relationship to, say, the government or something like that. If they spoke to you in other accents, you might pick up and identify. Uh, you could also identify people by their dress, the kind of clothing that they wore, depending on what part of the country they came from, what kind of work they were involved in, all this kind of stuff. This man laying on the side of the road, you can't hear him talk because he's unconscious. He's naked. So you can't see where he comes from or what he's been involved in or if he's rich or poor or what. He is just a naked, beaten up, unconscious man on the side of the road. In essence, he is now just a bleeding, broken carcass. He might not actually live that long. He's unconscious. And so we have him there. Thugs have beaten him up. Who knows? They might still be around. All the more reason to get out of there quickly. You know, that kind of a thing. So you can understand all the implications and all the self-justification that could be going on here. But a priest and then a Levite, which is kind of like a junior priest, uh, they pass by on the other side. And then comes the Samaritan. Um, I, I don't know how to give you shock value for this today. Uh, but it, just in the telling of this story, Jesus telling the story to this lawyer, there is such like... Uh, angst here because he actually names a Samaritan. Not only that, the Samaritan is actually the hero of the story. And so to tell this kind of story to a lawyer of, of, of the Pentateuch, one who's, who's grounded in, in, the, in the, the scriptures, this is almost like insulting, if you will, all right? But it's the Samaritan here, a despised Samaritan who stops. He pours oil and wine. They're often mingled together for medicinal purposes. He puts, it on the, he puts this guy on, on his donkey. That means he has to walk the whole distance while he's carrying this guy on the donkey. They come to an inn. This is not a Marriott hotel, all right? Um, it's just a, a, a little house, probably. It's got a little room on the side. There's animals there. They get to stay in there. They're just safe. They're, they're out of the, the elements, if you will, all right? And this guy's got to go on his way. Like, he's got to keep moving. And so he says to the innkeeper, he says, uh, if there's an extra charge, I'll pay it, all right? Uh, now, that's not just generous. That's quite amazing because it really is probably freeing this man from slavery because you see in this day and in this time, if a debt was owed and it could not be paid, the honorable thing to do would be to, and, and the legal thing to do would be to sell yourself into some, some form of slavery. Um, the man, if he owes you because he owes you, um, that is the right thing to, to sort of happen. Or I'm not saying it's right, but in that day, in that culture, it was the right thing to happen. This man is stripped down. Um, he can't just take out a visa card and say, give me new clothes. Or, you know, he's got nothing. He's got nothing. And this Samaritan picks him up and pays for a couple of weeks of everything he needs and tells the innkeeper, hey, if there's more, I'll be back. I'll take care of it at that point. And Jesus tells this story, and he says in verse 36 now, okay, who is my neighbor? Um, Jesus, Jesus doesn't ask it that way, all right? This is what the man asks. Jesus basically is saying, to whom must I be a neighbor? That is a different question. That is totally, absolutely different here. 
then who is, who is my neighbor? No, that's not what he's saying. Really here he's saying, to whom must I be a neighbor? Who is, who is a neighbor to this man who fell upon the thieves, all right? Instead of answering the, the, this, this kind of original question, Jesus undermines this man's whole entire attitude because he says, basically, how do I become a good neighbor? To whom must I be a neighbor? And I think that's the question that's, that's penetrating, and that's the question for you and I today, all right? That, that's, what, that's what we need to come down to, all right? The Son of God has done it. He has taken care of it, all right? And, and man, there's so much more we could, we could go into here, but let me, let me close with this. Um, the reality is when the, when the disciples got sent out on mission, whether it was the 12 or the 72, they came back, and they, they always rejoiced. And when the 72 came back, they were, they were greatly rejoicing, saying, it's amazing. We went out in the name of Jesus. We cast out demons and devils, and people were delivered and healed and all this kind of stuff. And they were, they, they were like gloating in the power and the authority that somehow they had been given, that they had received from Jesus, that he placed, he placed his authority, his anointing upon them. And they went out, and they did great things. And they came back, and it was like, look what we did, man. Demons like flew out of people because of us. Like we laid our hands on people, and they were like totally delivered. It's wild, you know. And and Jesus just said, you know what? You really don't need to rejoice about that. That's really not something to be so, so happy about. Take joy in the fact that I have authority. But you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice in this one thing. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In other words, it doesn't matter how many demons you cast out. It doesn't matter how many people you heal and set free. It doesn't matter how much work you do at any point in time in your life. That will never justify you. That will never take care of it for you. Only Jesus justifies. The work of the cross cannot be mingled and mired with other things. You cannot get synchronistic with this thing with works, okay? You cannot do that. You have to understand that it is Jesus. Oh, man, I wish I, there's so much more to tell you. Let, let, let me conclude here. Let's just come to the finish. Eternal life is not inherited. At the end of the day, it's never gained by all the stuff you do. That, the teachings of Scripture, if you'll go back and look, and, and the, I mean, the, the, the very systematic teachings of the Bible... Uh, just tell us that it comes through again and again and again that works will never save you. Deuteronomy quotes the law, tells you this is what you do to live, this is what you don't do, because if you do this, you'll die. So it's very, very law-oriented. But at the end of the, of the book of Deuteronomy, what happens? Moses doesn't get to go in the promised land. Mo think about Moses, all that he did, but he didn't get to go in the promised land. Folks, it's never going to be about what you do. What you do doesn't, doesn't cause God to decide something, all right? And, and there's something else that I'm going to leave you with as we close here, and I think it comes out and it's reflected in this parable. Um, you know, I would ask you, who is the perfect good Samaritan? Uh, none of us, none of us. God is the very good, good Samaritan through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very good, good Samaritan, all right? And you and I can never be that, all right? But here's what I want you to understand, that, that when we look at this, we have to see something here, all right? And, and that is that Jesus is so good as a good Samaritan, as 
that person because he came along the way. And when he came along the way, he went for the broken and, and the beaten and the, and the disenfranchised and the hurt and the wounded and the poor and the critical and all of these kinds of things. That's what he came for. Jesus is the good Samaritan who came and he journeyed. And when he came to earth, he came for you. He stopped for you because you were that person who was broken and naked and poor and on the side of the road. You had no value. There was nothing in yourself that gave you value. And Jesus made you valuable when he died on the cross for you. And so he came and he not only took what you and gave to you what you needed there. He didn't just pour the oil uh, on you in that moment and anoint you so you could feel a little bit better. But he said, I'll pay it all. I'll take care of everything. I'll do everything that you need so that you can have eternal life. You're good to the end. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. I got it. I got it. Father, I got it. This one is calling to me. My heart is for this one because they're broken and they're needy and they're hurt. And I, I've come to them. I'm telling you, Father, I got it. I got it to the end. They're yours. Preserve this person because they're mine. And that's how he prayed to the Father. In John, these you've given to me. Take care of them. Even in this world, in this earth, take care of them because they are mine. But in ultimately, Father, make them one as you and I are one. And that's what we have to go with. We're going to share the gospel. You can never justify yourself. I want to pray for you. Only, only in Christ, only in the resurrection are you justified. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And I declare your righteousness is among us. You are here. You are with us. Jesus, you are indeed that good Samaritan. You have come in a very powerful way to pick us up out of our brokenness and out of our poverty and out of our need. And you have established us in the righteousness that you have for us. And by the power of the cross and the resurrection, you have redeemed us out of darkness and you have made us rich in you. And God, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you that we don't have to earn any of this, that we can't. You don't even allow it. It's not even in your system. It's not in your economy for that. And so our dependence today is upon you. So as we come, Father, to you today in our heart and even in, in, as we bring our broken lives to you today, God, we ask you to have your way. We ask you to do something amazing here, God, uh, that, that through Christ alone we are justified, we are redeemed, we are set apart. And so, God, we thank you. We thank you as we come and we bring these broken places in our lives to you. We can't earn your help. We can't earn your satisfaction. We can't earn your love. We can't earn your salvation. We can't earn your answer to our problems. It's freely given. And so thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to share a short story of, I think illustrates this really well. Uh, it's about me, which I don't like to do, but um, many years ago, I was hurrying to Sioux Falls on my motorcycle to uh, go to a, get to a softball game in time. I was speeding, and right over the hill comes the county county sheriff. I stopped. He come up, the, come up, turned around, come and he was laughing. And he looked at me and he said, "You know what you did?" I said, "Yes, I do." He said, "Well, I'm not going to write you a ticket," and he just said, 
you shouldn't be doing this anymore. And he asked me about the insurance. I had no insurance on a motorcycle. He said, well, you're going to have to go to see the judge. A few days later, I'm standing in the courtroom, and I'm waiting to my turn to go up to stand before the judge. And he says, he's talking to some other people, and they said, well, I had to do this because, because the guy was making all kinds of excuses, and the judge was getting pretty upset. <laughs> then it was my turn. I walked up there. He looked at me and asked me how I pled. I said, I'm guilty. He said, do you have insurance now? I handed him the paper. I said, I, I corrected what I did wrong. And I can see that it was kind of a relief to him. And he looked at me and he said, go home. You did what was right. Didn't give me a ticket, didn't give me anything. He just, you're forgiven, go. And I found that it's a whole lot easier to just surrender and just say to God, I did it wrong. I didn't do it right. And to throw myself upon his grace and his mercy. I can make up all kinds of excuses, but they just don't stand. You know, and, and when I do that, I, I, just like with the judge, his grace just flows, just flows. God doesn't have to go through all this other stuff, questioning and making all these other illustrations to try to convince me that it's my heart that's messed up, not him, and excuses don't work. So it's easier just to lay it all down. I'm guilty. God, I need your grace. I need your help. And he just pours out the help. Just like the person that took care of the, the Good Samaritan that took care of the person that was injured, he says to the innkeeper, if you need more, I'll provide it. If you need more from Jesus, it's provided. He can give to you everything you need. The forgiveness, that's why he went to the cross. That's why he died. And the proof that his death on the cross paid for everything is the fact that he was resurrected and came back to life again to give this grace and this mercy to us. So if you don't know him, you can know him. If you're struggling with something, you can find the answer in him. Just come to him and be totally, absolutely honest. So, Father God, I ask that you would just work in our hearts to bring us close to you. I can't do this myself. I need you. I need your help and your strength. I ask you to help us in this, in Jesus' name.